I like the light because then I get to see you better. Okay, I want to start today with a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word fatherhood? I just want you to take time. Take a second for that. Not a rhetorical question. I want you to actually think about it. You don't need to give a response or anything like that, but I do want you to think about it. What comes to mind when you hear the word fatherhood? The reality is fatherhood is an extraordinarily important idea. Not just for us as Americans, that's actually one of the few things that we can talk about as not a cultural experience, but a human experience. That humans from across the world, no matter their culture, no matter where they come from, right, the idea of fatherhood is powerful and important. Uh, Even in media, right, like what we consume for entertainment, the theme of fatherhood is not one that is belittled, but actually it's one that's exalted. It's one that's meaningful and powerful. Whether it's from Darth Vader telling Luke, I am your father. Whether it's Simba looking at the cloud, hearing the rumbling voice of Mufasa, remember who you are. You're my son. Or whether it's little orphan Annie, right? Becoming, going from orphan to the daughter of Daddy Warbucks. No matter where we go, no matter how we try to run, no matter our experience, fatherhood is quite important. And the thing is, it's powerful and important because this one experience, it shapes us. It's what we would call influential. It influences us. It shapes our mind and our heart in some way. You might even say that what springs to mind when you hear the word or idea of fatherhood may speak at least a little bit. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, what you thought is like the defining aspect. No, but at least a little bit. What comes to mind when you hear that word, uh, what comes to mind when you hear the idea of fatherhood is an indication of what you've experienced, and that probably leads to a little bit of who you are now because how powerful the influence of fatherhood actually is. It shapes us in some way. Like I said, maybe a little, maybe a lot. Uh, probably a lot. <laughs> probably a lot, but, but in some way. And, and that's true not just in terms of an anecdote, not terms in, in terms of just us talking, but there's, there's statistical evidence for this. The Fatherhood Project, which is a, a organization meant to try and increase the involvement of fathers, particularly as it pertains to the impact of fatherhood on um, academics, uh, collected some research. And in their research, they said this, that children who feel greater closeness to their father are twice as likely to enter college and find stable employment after high school. More frequent father engagement in their child's home literacy and education education results in higher achievement levels in reading and math for the children. That's pretty powerful. It's not just a story, it's not just a theme in a movie, but it actually has very real applications. And it reminds me of myself and a friend of mine, my friend James. Uh, All all names in the story have been changed for the privacy of you know. (laughs) Uh, But me and my friend James, and I've known James for what feels like my entire life. Some of my earliest memories, James is present. From t-ball teams, Going up to my teenage years, and even more recently, I, I've spoken to him. He's a good friend of mine and a longtime friend of mine. His presence in my life almost echoes just with the, the, the sheer presence and consistency of it with another character in my life, which is my father. As long as I can remember, my dad's been around. He's, he's been involved, and he's been 
present. And so much of, of as I get older, I recognize how important simply the idea of presence is, that it's, it's really hard to be perfect, but perfect isn't the goal when you're a parent. Oftentimes, presence and intention is the goal because you will never be perfect. And, and the more I evaluate my life and I view the presence of my father and my mother as well, they're both here, so I gotta, I gotta shout out my mom, make sure she's, she's standing right there, she gave me the dirty look if I don't. Um, how important they are. Not, again, not by their perfection, but by their mere presence. Always been involved, sometimes maybe too involved, but involved nonetheless, and, and lovingly trying to do what's right for me. I always felt that, always knew that. Now I want to take a second and go to James, because in James' life, he also had a father figure, his father. But there would be times where I would go to James' house, and I wouldn't see James' dad for weeks at a time. We'd be there, but he wouldn't be there. He'd gotten divorced uh, from James' mother quite a few years before we started connecting into high school. And James' mother was not in the picture, but it also at times felt like James' father wasn't in the picture. Just wasn't really around. And James was one of the most talented people that I'd ever met. He had gifts and skills that would blow me away. Like he was the type of guy where like, you know, he just, he seemed like he could do everything. You could never put anything in front of him he couldn't master in some way. Uh, so much so that when he applied for colleges, he got into every single one that he applied for. Every single one. Uh, but the thing is, during James' senior year of high school, he kind of had a crescendo in his relationship, a kind of climax in his relationship with his father, and it dissolved in a lot of ways. And his father, not being pastoral, much less parental, looked at his son, who um, had so many gifts, had so much ambition and such a beautiful vision for his life. And in that exact moment, going into a senior year, needed so much support that he kicked him out of his house. and said, you need to get out of here. You're not welcome here anymore. And James lived with me uh, in my mother's house for the entire last year he was in school. Fatherhood, right? Two different applications, the same idea, but just from two different experiences and it shaped the direction of our lives forever. Where James was incredibly, uh, he had so much potential, and he was so incredibly smart, it felt like there was nothing he couldn't do, and he got into every single college he applied for, and yet he actually never even tried to go. Compared to me, I felt like I had so substantially less potential, uh, did not get into every college I applied to. Shoot, I barely got into college at all, and yet I was pushed down the field. Fatherhood. Now, contrary to what you might be thinking, the sermon today is actually not about fatherhood. But it is about the power of influence. It is about the power of how certain roles, certain people, certain moments can influence, influence us in ways that, that changes the trajectory of our lives and creates an entirely different vision of who we are, where we're going, and, and what we're meant to be, who we're meant to be. And it can be so subtle, so small, that two different experiences create two different trajectories. And the thing is, I think that as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're going to be talking about um, over, the next, over the next several weeks, 
The idea of how influence looms large is very central to this idea. And as we, we start this, you may be thinking again, how does this relate? And it's because it's my understanding that something really beautiful is happening here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, something that speaks to the influences in our lives and, and what God is doing to restore, repair, or maybe even just improve those influences and how they're forming us and how they're shaping us. And so that's where we're going to start, having planted that idea, not just Father, but the idea of how, how things and people and roles can influence us. I want us to start by just rereading those first two verses and maybe reading with a little bit of that kind of, that kind of idea of influence looming over you. So Matthew 5, 1 through 2, starts like this. When he saw the crowds, that is Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, we're going to stop there. And you might be like, you're missing all the good stuff. That's okay. We have several weeks we're going to be working through this. That's all right. There's several, there's a lot to get to. We're just going to do a little introduction today. A little introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and again, kind of what it means for us, and particularly thinking about the idea of influence. And this seems, again, like the beginning. In this verse, it seems like we're introduced into a setting, introduced into a theme. Jesus clearly is kind of in a, in a little kind of rural setting. That's how you picture it. That's how I picture it. He goes up onto a mountain. The only reason I say rural setting is because unless you're like in, uh, what's it called, Colorado Park, or what's the one that's built right next to the, the, the mountain in Colorado? You're from Colorado. You should be telling me. There's Estes Park at Colorado Springs, I don't know if y'all have ever been to Colorado Springs, there's that little town that's literally built like into the park, into the, the mountain. It's really wild. Most of the time, mountains are pretty rural. So uh, we find Jesus in a very rural setting. He goes up onto the mountain, and he begins to deliver teaching. And this is really powerful, but, but I think it requires a little more exploration. You see, the Sermon on the Mount isn't a standalone text. This story isn't standing alone. There's not the be- this isn't the beginning of a book. It's the beginning of a story. And that story is found within another story, a bigger story. And that bigger story is a story that comes from the Gospel <coughs> of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, for those of you that don't know, is a collection of stories about Jesus and his teachings collected and written down by the disciple Matthew. And while the Sermon on the Mount is an incredible text... This is a text that's been explored by people from across the world, by different religions. It's been quoted by Gandhi. It's it's used loosely in the writings of Islam. Uh, People who are just atheists have used it as um, most of the time as like evidence of hypocrisy between how Christians act versus what our, our, our leader, what our founder says. At the end of the day, it belongs not to Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, or atheism, or even the world, it belongs in the context of Matthew, where we understand it, and where when we see it in that context, we actually see just how beautiful it is. When we see it in its truest purpose and most powerful understanding, comes when we see it in its place among the stories of Matthew, and, and being used for the purposes that Matthew has. You see, Matthew wrote his gospel to a specific audience. He wrote the gospel of Matthew particularly to Jewish Christians. Christians who were Christians now, but they came from a Jewish background. They were raised with Jewish stories, with the stories that we sometimes attach to and and we obviously adopted into our faith, and we see them in light of Christianity now, right? The the actual context of of Matthew is saying, hey, I'm writing it to y'all that have been like, these are like the stories of your culture and history. When you think about uh, who, is is it Thomas Jefferson or is it George Washington that cuts down the apple tree? 
right? George Washington. And then it's Ben Franklin that's, that's holding the kite and lightning strikes it, right? These are our culture's stories. The American Revolution, that's we tie to that in some way because it kind of feels like we're a direct descendant of that, at least in philosophy. And, and, and in a lot of ways, he's writing to people, Matthew is, who attach themselves not just spiritually, but ethnically, culturally, philosophically to a bunch of stories that we know, but that they were connected to in profound ways. Stories like Moses and Abraham and David and all these characters that we look at and hold in high esteem. And we see them as people that we can relate to or the people that are part of a spiritual story. But the Jewish Christians that Matthew's writing to saw them as cultural partners. They're like brothers, like cousins. And the thing is, one of Matthew's goals in his gospel is to show his Jewish audience, an audience that is very Jewish, how Jesus has come to fulfill those stories. And, and, and right, that those stories they grew up hearing, they connect to, that Jesus is actually here to fulfill them. Uh, it's why on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says this in, in Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And Matthew does this in a lot of different ways. He does this in, in and there's, I mean, there's like Bible Project videos. That's a podcast and like a YouTube channel. You can go watch that to, to check out some of like an overview of some of that. But one of the main ways he does this is by attaching the identity of Jesus to another figure in Jewish culture that looms large that everyone knows. And that figure is named Moses. Y'all know Moses. We actually just have to be talking about Moses a lot because we just spent like 10 weeks in the Ten Commandments. Moses, the let my people go guy and the, the opens his arms and the, the ocean, right? Like, like spreads apart that Moses. And he connects the idea of Jesus to that Moses so that they can uh, kind of sh- to show the Jewish readers that Jesus isn't just a new prophet. He's not just a, a new kind of hip thing within Jewish culture, but he is actually the new and greater Moses, the idea that's better and then everything they knew about Moses and really everything they knew about Judaism. How does this happen? Well, I'm going to get nerdy here, so follow me for like five seconds, okay? He does it by retelling the story of Moses through the story of Jesus. And so when we look at the, uh, the story of Moses and the story of Jesus and Matthew, there's this incredible parallel that happens where Moses came out of Egypt and he was raised in Egypt and was brought out. Jesus, likewise, in, in Matthew 2.15, comes out of Egypt. They have to run per- and flee persecution, and then he comes back out of persecution to move back uh, to Bethlehem. Uh, he, where Moses goes through the Red Sea, Jesus, likewise, is baptized in the River Jordan and enters into the water. And, and where Moses, after coming out from the Red Sea in the water, spends 40 years in the wilderness when Jesus comes out of the water in, three, in chapter 3. In chapter 4, Jesus then spends 40 days in the wilderness. And he enters into the same exact narrative and the same exact flow and the same exact thing as Moses. And all of, G, all of Matthew's Jewish readers would have been like, oh, I can see some parallels here. This is pretty neat. This is pretty cool. And you right now are like, okay. Because I also kind of share that with them, and I'm like, this is pretty neat. This is pretty cool. But you're kind of like, okay. But there's one really crescendoing moment that we get to that really pertains to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this, that, that after and in the wilderness, Moses goes up the mountain and receives the law. We just got through talking about this. For 10 weeks, he goes up the mountain, and he receives the law, the Ten Commandments. And here, in the very verse that we read, it starts, and Jesus went up the mountain. He goes up the mountain, but instead of receiving the law, instead of hearing it from God, Jesus begins to teach. So where Moses went and received and came down and saw failure, Jesus 
goes up the mountain, begins to give the law himself. And it should start ringing some bells if you're a Jewish reader that maybe, maybe this Moses figure that's so important to us, maybe this Jesus figure that's here now, may be just as important, dare I say it, he may be more important. Which y'all sitting here are like, oh yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. But that's not the, what, it, what it felt like for them. You see, the influence that people like our parents, fathers, mothers, experiences have on us, that shape us, that make us feel like they are who, they're the reason we exist. They're what's brought us to the moment we're in. That's what they felt about Moses. Yeah, we don't have a problem going, I think, I think Jesus is greater than George Washington. Yeah, okay. That doesn't make, that doesn't rattle us. That doesn't make us freak out. But what if I told you that the mercy and grace of Jesus as your brother is meant to be the new and greater care that you failed to receive from your dad? What if I told you that right now, as they begin to hear the story of how Jesus is this new and greater Moses, there would have been some here that received it and went, man, that's amazing. I love Moses. I, I know all those stories. I'm waiting for a new Moses. Because remind you, they're not just like in their own country. They are, but they're under the oppression of a Roman government. And so some of them are sitting there going, I got the story of Jesus. He's the new Moses. That must mean we're all going to be free soon. This is great. And there were some that said, what does Moses have to do with me? Because he may have saved them from enslavement in Egypt, but centuries later, I'm still in the slums of a Roman province. That's where I find myself. And here comes Matthew with this incredible story just taking place in just a few paragraphs, a few chapters. It says whether, whether the influence of your life have been incredible or whether the influences of your life have been absolutely failures, have been absolute failures, Christ is your new and greater influence. That whether those influences have been absolutely incredible, whether they have shaped you in ways that make you go, no, I'm, I'm feeling great. I know the stories of Moses. I know exactly how this goes. I'm doing great. I love God. I'm trying to follow God. I, my life is really beautiful. Or whether they have failed and you look at your life and go, man, people suck. I've had to shape my own future. No one's ever been there for me. And no one will ever be there for me. Christ enters to be the new and greater influence in your life. The same way that, that we tend to relate and see ourselves as being shaped by those that have influenced, influenced us, the invitation, even at the beginning of this book, is that I'm, I'm here to introduce you to one who's going to reshape you. That all those dark and, and terrible moments, all those incredibly hard moments, all those moments of sorrow, but include, but also all those moments of joy, also all those moments of celebration, I'm here to reintroduce you to one that's going to either redeem and restore those failures or just improve on those successes. But either way, he's going to completely wipe the slate clean with whatever was before because he's going to make you a new creation. He's going to, he's going to bring something new. He's your new influence. This is the type of idea that's present just there, and we see it in the story that while, while Moses, right, was coming out of Egypt, Jesus came out of Egypt, while Moses went through the Red Sea and Jesus went through the river 
favorite Jordan. When Moses goes into the wilderness for 40 years, he fails. Yet when we go to Matthew 4, we see Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he succeeds. Where, where Moses had failed, where the influences of the Jewish culture had, had failed and been miserable and not lived up to God's expectations and not led the people in the way they were supposed to, Jesus enters into that same story and succeeds. He resists the temptation of the enemy and he displays this power and beauty to overcome the temptation of sin. Maybe the same temptation that would lead him to not lead others well. But it doesn't stop there. Again, we, we mentioned that while Moses goes up to um, the the mountain and receives the law only to come back and give it to people whose heart has already departed from it. He literally comes down the mountain and is like, guys, I received the law from God. Often they'll be like, well, we're already worshiping something else. And meanwhile, Jesus walks up the mountain and doesn't receive the law, but begins to give it in, in, in all at the same time promising that I'm not here to, to try to help shape you. I myself am going to give you a new heart. It won't just be that I give you a law that's meant to shape you or reveal your heart. I'm going to give you the new heart. I'm going to provide you the new law. I'm going to provide you the means of redemption. I'm the greater anything that you've ever had in your past, whether it was a successful thing, whether it was a not successful thing, whether they actually placed faith in God to get through the mountain and get through the river, I mean, or, or whether they failed in the wilderness. I'm going to come and I'm going to do everything great. Every moment, I want to say it like this, every moment that you have failed, and you look back and go, man, I feel like I just have a one-to-one -one clone syndrome of a certain influence, whether it's a father, whether it's a mother, whether it's an experience you had of rejection with like a significant other, whether it's a moment you had in school where it felt like the influence of your experience told you that you were never going to be enough, whether it feels like you're looking at some of this parenthood or fatherhood stuff that I just mentioned earlier, and you're concerned because you think, I don't have a father figure like that, and so maybe I'm not going to do as good in school because this is saying that I'm not going to do good in school. The narrative and the story of Jesus comes in to say, I'm going to wipe all that away. The echoes of how insufficient you are are going to be wiped away by the incredible roar of the lion saying how sufficient you are because of me. The still small lies that tell you how unloved you are and how your failures have put you in a category where people can only sneer at you, the lion is going to roar away through the declaration that you're loved and you're cared for. When the shame enters in and, and comes in to say, I can't believe you did that. How are you even here? Why did you even, why, how could you go to Jesus? Why would you go to church? There's not, I mean, man, no, if only, if people knew who you were, if they knew exactly how you behaved, if they knew the actual thoughts you had, no one, and I mean no one, would want to be your friend. They wouldn't want to be your brother. They wouldn't want to be your sister. They would look at you and go, get me as far away from this person as you possibly can. The voice of the one who's called a friend of sinners enters in to say, no, but you're mine. That every echo that's told you and made you feel like you're marginalized, insufficient, and not enough, we now have an introduction of a new voice who's going to contradict that with the truth of, of God's redeeming love and care, and, and he stands up at the mountain to start delivering the truth uh, that he loves, that there's a new day dawning, that the old influences don't have the last say. That's what's happening here. And it's incredible. It's incredible. It's wild. And it happens through a really powerful idea. It happens through a really powerful idea that this new influence, this new influence 
provides a new identity. That this new influence provides a new identity where the old influence that said, how come he didn't stay? How come she didn't care? How come I wasn't good enough? How, how come I wasn't smart enough? How come studying didn't work? How come I didn't get the job? And each one of those little influences that comes in and builds an identity, that the new influence is gonna provide a new identity. How do we know that? Am I just conjecture? No, it's actually the whole reason why it was made. What do I mean by that? Let's go to another chart. The charts, the charts are in today, guys. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5, Matthew 5 through 7. It's actually paired together with another text called the Sermon on the Plain that's in Luke 6. And Luke 6 is a smaller version of Matthew 5 through 7, but they were written for very specific reasons. They have a lot of commonalities, but they have some very important differences. One, they're both collections of Jesus' teaching. Okay, they're just both collection of Jesus' teaching. They have ideas that he undoubtedly said and communicated and were collected and were communicated through the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. There were one, this is where the differences start, one was written to Hebrew Christians, that's Jewish Christians, that's the Sermon on the Mount, while the other was written to Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, that they was written to people who had not been Jewish. They did not connect to the idea of Moses like that. They didn't feel so closely connected to all of these Bible stories. They, they were in a different world, and yet what happens at the end is that while the Sermon on the Mount provides a new identity as a Christian in the Jewish world, Luke and his sermon provides a new identity as a Christian in the Gentile world. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that while Matthew writes his down thinking, I'm writing to Jewish people, and those Jewish people need to accept and really hold to some of their values, because this is where our faith really even came from, I'm also going to tell them they need to change some of their values. And I'm going to give them a vision of a new identity, not one that's Jewish, but one that's Christian while being Jewish. And then Luke does the same thing. He says, I'm writing to, to non-Jewish people. I'm really writing to Greek people. And, and those Greek people, man, they, they need some aspects of their culture affirmed. They need to be challenged in some way. They need to turn away from certain things. And I'm going to give them an identity through this sermon that's not going to be Gentile, but is going to be Christian while being Gentile, while being Greek, while being Roman. But here's the vision of this, and here's why this is so important. Here's why I think this is... Am I telling you this just because I want you to nerd out? Those of you that are nerding out, this is your day, because it's not always going to be like this. A lot of this type of stuff hits the cutting room floor most of the time, so this is your moment. But here's why this is so important. Because whether you were a Jew, a Greek, a Roman, the idea was that the words of Jesus stick with you and they do things. That was at root here. That like a conversation, like a deep an incredible conversation that when you leave the table, the words of the moment seem to stick with you. They seem to never leave you. It feels like your life was changed and years have been transformed through 60 minutes sitting with someone. The words of Jesus likewise begin to shape and transform us to the point that who we saw ourselves as before is no longer who we see ourselves as now. That while I was Jewish before, now I'm a follower of Jesus. And Jewish. While I was Greek before, now I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm Greek. While I was Mexican before, they were Mexicans, I'm talking about me. While I was Mexican before, now I'm a follower of Jesus. While being Mexican, I love, I love Mexican food. Maybe a little too much. But you know what I'm identified by now? Not that single part of me. 
I'm not identified even, and hear me, I love the culture of like Mexican-American. My family is from the north of Mexico, and, and it's, it's something that I love deeply. And yet through the words of Jesus, I've inherited a, a spiritual identity that the north of Mexico, no matter how beautiful it is, could never provide me. That the city of Austin could never provide me. That a university could never provide me. That anything, nothing could ever provide me. And the new influence comes in to say, I'm gonna provide you a new identity because when you're done with my words, you won't be the same anymore. Who you were before will not be who you are now. And so he goes up the mountain, he sits down, and he begins to teach. That's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this. Let me give you, a, a, let me give you some just, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm going to give you my agenda. For all of the weeks we're in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to give you my agenda for it. I'm going to give you the reason why we're in it. It's not so that you could be a better person. I'm just going to put it down right away. I could not care less about how good or bad or, or, or neutral of a person you are after we get through talking. Because guess what? You listening to me talk does not do that to you. My agenda is not so that we could read the Beatitudes and learn how to be merciful. My agenda is not so that we could read... Um, the Lord's Prayer, which is going to be in this series, and, and somehow it would turn you into a prayer warrior. Every single week, I'm going to come up here, and I'm going to sweat, and I'm probably going to yell, and then I'm probably going to try to change the dynamics and do like a little whisper. And I'm going to miss Arsenal games like I am right now. <laughs> so that I can lay every single fiber of my being down at your feet and convince you that every single part of your life, the best moments, the worst moments, the highest times, and the lowest times are in this moment, being wrapped up in the hands of a redeemer that seeks to serve you, love you, know you, and shower you with grace and mercy. And through that experience and that relationship, the rest of your life is going to be transformed. That's what I'm going to do every single week. There will not be a week where I, I, I may not do it as well every week. <laughs> but that is going to be my agenda, my goal, every single time I come up here. Because that's what I think the agenda was here. It wasn't to say, here are just some really good ways to live. They are. That's why they're so just everywhere. Not just like, I, and last week we talked about the Ten Commandments. And that feels very cultural to us because they're like, oh, let's put the Ten Commandments out of courthouse and blah, blah, blah. That feels very cultural. This is a prayer that's, I mean, like the moment it, the moment it hit the press, it went viral. It went, it's like the first viral prayer. It got picked up by Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus. They went everywhere right away. And yet I, I'm here not to tell you how valuable it is from their perspective. I'm, to, I'm here to tell you how valuable it is from Matthew's perspective. And Matthew, I believe his perspective, influenced by the Holy Spirit, was that I'm here to deliver to you the new master, the new redeemer, 
the one who's freed us, the one who saves us, the one who has succeeded, where every one of the influences and inspirations and really caretakers of your life have failed, I'm here to introduce you to the new and greater that, the new and greater you, the new and greater everything, the one who's going to make everything right through his work on the cross and his perfect life. That's who we're going to get introduced to here. That's the whole purpose of this. That's it. Because I firmly, deeply believe that Jesus steps onto the scene in whatever this is, year 30 AD or whatever. And Matthew starts jotting ideas down and it comes to, it comes to the surface that the way the world was before because of this Jesus is not the way the world is going to be. And the influences of your world, the influences of my world, the influences that have told me who I am, the influences who have told me who I'm not are going to be grabbed and they're either going to be crushed or they're going to be even exaggerated and, and, and made true. They're going, to like, they're going to take on their real nature of what they were supposed to be all through the presence of this one person declaring who we are through giving us a vision of who he is. That's what happens here. I'm convinced of that. I mean, you could call me ignorant, and I, but I'm fully, like, obnoxiously convinced. And I, I'm going to be honest. I think you and me need to desperately hear those ideas, cling to them, and start to, start to really think about what our lives are, how we got where we are, who has told us who we are, who has told us who we're not, who has told us what we're going to be, who has told us what we have been, and we need to start grappling, grappling with that, identifying it, because the reality is there's going to be a Savior and a Redeemer over the next several weeks that's going to look at you and say, that's not true. Because you're mine, you're made in my image, and this is who I am. And so that's going to be the next several weeks. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go through Sermon on the Mount. I'm really excited about it. I hope you're excited about it. For today, I have a couple of application points. This was shorter introduction type of sermon, so we're not, like I said, uh, that's a very, you were probably looking at our scripture reading, and you're like, where's all the good stuff? We, we got time. It's just an introduction to what's happening today and where we're going to go over the next several weeks. But I do have two application points for you. Um, the first one is this. Uh, pay attention to where old influences and identity continue to speak to you today. I think that as you walk through life, the reality is the old influences and old identities you have, they come back up all the time. They come back up frequently. They come back up to tell you who you are. They come back up to tell you who you're not. They make us feel small. At times, to be very honest, they also make us feel a little too big. They make us feel a little too much. And when we feel a little too much, it tends to be that we're so much that we fail to go to God. And so pay attention to what the old influences and identities tell you, what they're on about, how they're getting to you. Try to pay attention to when that happens, not just, not just you know, like, like where it happens is in, oh, yeah, no, no, when it happens in terms of, like, your feelings. Like, is, is, it a, is it a certain circumstance that tends to spark this back up? Is it a certain experience that tends to spark this back up? Is it a certain person that tends to spark this back up? Why? Pay attention to that. I encourage you. And start, like, note it. Journal it. Jot it down. 
I've told you before, I have a emotions journal. And it's not as, it's not as big a, a visionary idea. It's, it's nothing. It's a note in the Notes app on my iPhone. And it is not put together well. It is a date. And then I try to capture the circumstances as much as I can in the actual note. And then it's just a bunch of thoughts. And if you read it, I, you can read it. That's how much I'm telling you. That's how bad it is. <laughs> I will let you read it. Because you will probably learn not much from me in it. But the thing is, the paper is not the goal. Just, just trying to identify the moments and then bringing them to the Lord is the goal. So I've grown from all these scratches that are in this paper, that are in this note, because I'm identifying where the old influences and identity continue to speak. And so that's the first one. The second one is this. Uh, to bring your struggles, your identity struggles, uh, into community appropriately. As we start this, I think there um, will be surely a lot of times where as you're wrestling through what's influencing you, right? What is the influence that's speaking to who I am right now? It doesn't just spark up. You don't just one day, I guarantee you right now, my son, my youngest son is a seven-month-old child. It was only until about 30 to 20 days ago he responded to the name Ezra. That was it. Prior to that, we had six months of us going, hi, Ezra, and him going. And then him looking that way, me being over there going, Ezra, Ezra, and him being like. And, and like going to hurt himself, right, because he's, he's buying like a, an electric socket. And it's like, Ezra, don't do that. And he's like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> it wasn't until just a few weeks ago that we started going, Ezra, and it's. You know, like little babies always shaking. I don't know if you could catch it that much. <laughs> right? He began to turn around and look at me and look at my wife and respond to that name. Influences, I'm saying this, influences take time. They take a little while. It takes a little time for you to actually be moved into that new identity. It takes a little time to figure out where it came from. Because it doesn't happen overnight. It happens with little building blocks that say, hey, Ezra. Hi, Ezra. No, Ezra. That, that takes place over the course of time. The thing is, the thing is, it will also take some time for you to tease out what exactly, how you got where you are. And so, in order to figure that out, I encourage you to like appropriately bring these struggles to community. I'm not saying like some, today you should like, we say amen, you turn around and you're like, hey, I struggle with this. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that find appropriate relationships, find appropriate places, contexts like community group, prayer time in community groups. I mean, like, like all those spaces that you're starting to pick up, I think this is where I need to be bringing these struggles and, and bring them. And, and start the work of identifying how did I get here? What are the actual building blocks that got me here? And it may get to a point where it's like clearly me and the community can't figure this out. I need to go to a counselor. Go to a counselor. You need help going to a counselor, holler at your boy. We can reference you or even help pay for some of that. Like, this is important. I, I want us to take these steps in, in honest and earnest ways as we start an adventure here that I think is going to be really cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. But where we're starting today is really identifying how the influence of a voice can change who we are, how it influences us to see ourselves. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is going to do that.
and I hope that it does it in a, it's going to try to do it in a way that actually shapes us for who we are in Christ. But, but I want us to respond not just like we did today with the prayer, not by going, oh, that's what God's trying to do, but, but by saying, I honestly want to join you. I want to join in on this journey. Let's go together. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, this time together. Help us, Father. Help us as we uh, set out on a new series, as we explore your words, uh, the words of your son uh, in this Sermon on the Mount, uh, that as we view them and as we understand them, and as we understand the context, as we understand what you're trying to do through them, that our hearts would come really open to receive, I think, a, a, a new influence, that, that as you spoke into the lives of people through your servant Moses, now we're invited into the vision that you don't speak through a mediator, but now that mediator is Christ. That Hebrew says we no longer, you know, are kind of through a middleman, but that God made flesh in the person of Jesus, that you are a mediator. Jesus, thank you. That you are the one who advocates for us, and that through your spirit you speak to us. And that now the influence of, of a figure in the past, a Moses, a, a dad, a mom, anybody that's spoken to us and tried to make us feel like we are or we're not, whether they've struggled, whether they've succeeded, now we're invited into a new voice, into a new identity, into a new uh, relationship, not just with uh, others, but, but to you directly. That we get to invite and experience your voice today. And so help open our hearts to that idea. Help us connect with you. Help us start to learn your voice like sheep that know the shepherd's voice and respond to it. Let us start to understand your voice, learn your voice, and hear it influencing us and drawing us and inviting us to your feet to receive love, affection, to receive, and often, often the things that we have failed to receive, that we didn't receive through the course of the broken relationships that we have, or just to kind of improve and increase on the ones that we did receive, what we did receive through good examples. Either way, uh, thank you, Father, uh, for these words, and I, I look forward and to um, walking through them, connecting with you, and hearing from you uh, a beautiful declaration of, of who we are. And so we love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.